0: Good morning. And uh, greetings from Irish UBM and greetings from Lion Baptist Church. And I know there are many at home who are praying for you and for your conference and indeed for me um, as I speak here this morning. Um, it was a great encouragement this morning to be at the prayer meeting. And there were many prayers prayed which expressed the sentiments of this psalm Psalm 22 much more eloquently um, than I may be able to. But it was a great encouragement and great blessing. Um, just a couple of words about myself. Um, I'm Scott. Um, I'm from Scotland. I was born in Glasgow. But when my parents, when I was around five, my parents demonstrated some blue sky thinking. And uh, so they moved to Northern Ireland and not to Yorkshire. So... Uh, <laughs> So, Psalm 22 um, was written by David. It was written between two and a half and three thousand years ago. And it was not about David. Um, The events we see in this psalm are not events that occurred in his life. And when we read the New Testament, it's clear in the book of Hebrews when they cite Verses from this psalm that they're not referring to David, they're referring to Christ. And so in this psalm, we're reading of Christ, our Saviour. A few more words about myself. I'm a fantastic chess player. I'm a marvellous chess player. I've never lost a game of chess to a five-year-old or to a six-year-old. But seven-year-olds, 50-50. And above that, my record's very poor indeed. And part of my problem playing chess is that, well, I know the aims, I know the rules, but I move my pieces randomly. I can't put together a strategy to achieve the goal. It's random playing. Now I have a friend, his name's David, at home. He was the best in the school. He was one of the best in the university. He completed um, across all Ireland and, and he continually beats me and it, it, it grinds me down. And my problem is that not only are my moves random, but when I look at his moves, they appear to be random as well. I can't see the strategy that he's putting behind the moves to tie those together to beat me. But there's a strategy there. There's an intelligence there. And so sometimes it's possible to find ourselves in a circumstance where events are happening around us and we don't appreciate what the significance of those events is. I sometimes wonder if I had been one of the onlookers at the time of Christ, an uninitiated onlooker, someone who wasn't entirely familiar with what was going on. I sometimes wonder what I would have made of it all. I may have seen the soldiers casting lots for the clothes of Christ at the foot of the cross and thought, well, that's a bit crass. But maybe I didn't think anything more of it. I may have seen... Them thrust a spear into his side and not break any of his bones and think, well, that's a bit barbaric on top of something which is already quite horrid, but maybe not have thought anything more about it. I may have seen them break the bones of the thieves on either side and not think any more of it. I may have heard the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And thought, well, that's an understandable cry from someone who's dying on the cross, and not thought any more of it. But Psalm 22 helps us see the significance of these events that we may not have otherwise attributed significance to. The cross was no accident. And Psalm 22 shows us But all these, what seemed to be meaningless and small details, were actually of very great significance. They were all predicted. His clothes were divided. His bones were out of joint as he hung on the cross. His hands and his feet were pierced. His bones were not broken. He was mocked. He saved others. Let him save himself. And he cried, why have you forsaken me? But for the Jew who heard all of this, this would have had great significance. Christ cried this because it was indeed the cry of his heart. But Christ cried this also to direct our attention to this psalm. Today when we asked you to read this psalm, we said, turn up Psalm 22. But we all know that many of the songs that we sing are known by the first line of the hymn or first line of the chorus, Amazing Grace, where the... um, if I, when I survey, and many of the songs that we sing are known by their first line My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first line of this psalm, and the Jews' attention would have been turned directly to it. And what do we learn? We learn that this was no accident. This was an event which was planned in eternity. It was an event which was planned by the triune God, the Father, the Son, And the Holy Spirit. It was a time that was it was an event that was not rushed, it was an event that was carried out in the fullness of time, at the right time, and all the details of it were foreordained. All those small details that we saw. And so we see that this cross was no accident. This cross of Christ was glorious because first of all it was planned. It was a planned event. As Isaiah 14, 24 says, As you have purposed, so it will be. As you have planned, so it will stand. Your hand is stretched forth, and no one can turn it back. The second thing to think about is, and some people would say, well, did Christ suffer on the cross? Okay, it may well have been planned, but did Christ suffer on the cross? The Gospels tell us Everything from an eyewitness account. It was all about what happened to him. It was all about what they did to him. They insulted him. They mocked him. They beat him. But did he suffer in those things or did he just experience them? And in this psalm we see not about him, but we see about I and me. How I am feeling, what they did to me. I think it's very easy for us as humans to empathize less with people who don't look like us, who aren't the same age as us, who maybe don't, aren't in the same station of life as us. We empathize greatest when people are like us. But if someone looks a little different or maybe is a little bit older, we might think to ourselves, well, they wouldn't suffer just to the same degree as I would. Maybe when we see people in war and torn lands and we see their houses being bombed, we think to ourselves, different culture, different nation might not experience that suffering as we would have. Or we see the millions that suffer in a plague or a famine and we think to ourselves, maybe they didn't suffer quite as much as we would have. We sort of dehumanise suffering sometimes or dehumanise people. That's what the Nazis did to the Jews. They treated them like animals. The people perceived them as animals. All sorts of cruelty was tolerated, and then came that final solution. And it's easy for Christians sometimes to dehumanize Christ. Maybe his suffering was a little bit less because of his faith. Maybe his suffering was a little bit less because of his hope. Maybe his suffering was a little bit less because of his humanity. We maybe make him a bit, little bit less man and a little bit more God and say that his suffering was less. But that's not what this psalm says. Did Christ suffer? The eyewitness tells us that in great anxiety, he said, My God, my God, if it is your will, take this cup from me. My God, my God, if it is possible, take this cup from me, as he sweat drops of blood. Tremendous anxiety. And in verse 2 here it says that he cried day and night and found no rest. The eyewitness of the gospel says he couldn't carry his cross. And this psalm tells us he was poured out like water. His heart melted like wax, melted within his chest. The eyewitness states he was mocked and disparaged. He felt dehumanized, I am a worm, the psalm says. But he trusted in the Lord, that the Lord would deliver him. The eyewitness tells us that his friends abandoned him, his disciples abandoned him. In the psalm we sense fear and apprehension as he's surrounded by raging bulls and ravenous lions that roar at him. The eyewitness records that there was three hours of darkness. But the Christ calls, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did the Christ suffer less because of his faith? Did the Christ suffer less because of his hope? Did the Christ suffer less because of his divinity? He felt every insult. He felt every blow. He felt every lash, every nail, every breath as he hung in the tree. And The Bible doesn't say that he suffered less for the hope that was before him, or for the joy that was before him. The Bible states, God's word states, that he endured that terrible suffering for the joy set before him. What was Christ's example in that suffering? When I come home from work, I sometimes find my kids doing their homework. Now, that's a rare event. But the amazing thing about homework is that it doesn't demand your attention. It's amazing how quickly my kids can close a book, jump up from the table, and come, Mummy, or Dad, um, as they greet us when we come home. But TV, sometimes when we come home, they've actually got their homework finished, and they might have a few minutes of TV, and so they'll be sitting at the screen, and we walk in through the door, and it's, Hi, Dad. Hi, Mum. And the the, the TV seems to demand their attention. It seems to draw them in. They can't drag themselves away from it. And suffering can be like that. Suffering draws our attention to it. Suffering wants us to wallow in it. Suffering wants us to drown in it. And what's Christ's example as he suffers in this cross in Psalm 22? Well, the first two verses My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I cry by day and night, but I find no rest. He's suffering. And then the following three verses. He looks to God who is holy and trustworthy and praiseworthy. In that suffering, he strives to look to God. The first two verses, two verses about suffering. But then we return to the suffering and we have three verses this time. And he's being insulted and he's being dehumanized and he feels like a worm. Three verses. But he turns to God in that suffering and remembers How God intimately brought him from the mother's womb. How God caused him to trust upon him from the very beginning. How God valued and loved him. And then as we move to verse 12, we now have seven verses about suffering. And this suffering that he's facing is consuming him. And yet, at the end of that, He focuses on how God previously rescued him. How did Christ face the suffering upon the cross? He continually turned in his mind to God as it overwhelmed him. And at the end of that passage, it says, and as he breathed his last and gave up his spirit, there was the hope that he would tell his name, God's name to his brothers. There was hope there. He kept returning to God's word. So Christ suffered on the cross. But a third group of people may ask, well, what was the point? What was the point of this suffering? What was the point of this death? Was it just a tragic waste of life? Returning to my chess games with five-year-olds and six-year-olds, um, sometimes when I'm playing these kids, um, if the early exchanges are quite, are quite good. Uh, we're both setting up our positions. There's no loss of life. No loss of pieces, no loss of pride. But eventually a point comes where one of these kids has set up an impenetrable defence that just can't be broken down by my skill or strategy. And so a point comes where I have to sacrifice a piece to try and win the advantage in this particular game. And inevitably, all it leads to is my utter annihilation um, and the destruction of all my pieces it was a miscalculation and failure on my part. But what if Christ was His death a miscalculation? Was His death a failure? Well, verse 34 in Psalm, verse 24 in, ver, in Psalm 22, He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. God has not rejected the suffering of the Christ. He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. God has not abhorred or rejected the affliction of the Christ. Hebrews 10 verse 5 tells us that God did not want sacrifices and offerings. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me. A body was prepared for Christ. And this body was, as we've seen in this psalm, the plan was for Christ to go to the cross. This body was prepared for Christ to go to the cross. This body was prepared for Christ to hang upon a tree. This body was prepared for Christ to bear our sins on his body on that tree. This body was prepared for the one who hung in that tree to be cursed. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was pierced for our transgressions. The punishment that brings us peace was upon him. What was the point of this death? What was the point of this suffering? Christ was taking our punishment upon himself. He bore our sin upon himself to present us holy in the father's sight well you can imagine when the psalmist wrote this psalm and knowing that no prophecy of scripture ever came about by the will of man but holy men of God wrote as they were driven by the Holy Spirit. You can imagine David, the psalmist, as he writes this psalm, thinking to himself, "How could this ever be? How, how will all the nations, How will all the nations ever come to praise God? How will they ever remember Him? How will they ever turn to him? I just can't see how this could one day be. You can imagine as Christ died. And the Jews and the Romans saying, well, you know, what you've said so far, intended, that's fine. Um, he was going to suffer, that's fine. He was to bear our sin, that's fine. But this is, a, this, is a, this is a failed mission. His disciples have fled. He's here on his own. We were distributing Bibles in church last week. And we were thinking about how many Bibles there were at different stages of history, or how many copies of God's Word there were at different stages of history, and what the population of the world was at that time. So when the Ten Commandments are given to Moses. One copy of God's word. The estimated population of the world was about 50 million at that time apparently. Less than the UK today. At the time of Christ when the New Testament was written. Estimated population of the world about two hundred and fifty million, thousands of copies of God's word. Maybe one copy of God's word for every 50,000 people. Today, 7 billion people in the world. And in 1992, it was estimated that there were 6 billion copies of God's Word already printed. Today, one copy of God's Word per person. Now, if that's a surrogate marker of how God's Word and God's Gospel have gone around the world, and I think that's a very powerful marker of how God's Word has gone around the world. There's work to be done. One and a half billion people have still not heard or still not received God's word in their language. But God's word is out there. God's word is out there. After the execution and death of Christ, verse 22, was it a failed mission? He would be with his brothers, the redeemed, in the midst of a great congregation. This was not the end for Christ. He was of the line of David according to the flesh, but he was declared by the resurrection to be the Son of God. And after this, he would be with his brothers, verse 22, in the midst of a great congregation. Verse 25, My vows I will perform before those who fear him. He was resurrected. Verse 27, The ends of the earth would turn to the Lord. And we see this today. Today, we look around the world today and we see in China, we see in Japan, we see in South America, everywhere around the world, we see people worshipping and following the Lord. The families of the nations will worship. Christ has accomplished this. The cross of Christ was not a failure. He died to make a kingdom and priest to God and he gloriously succeeded. And he stated so on the cross. It is finished. It is done. It is accomplished. He achieved this on the cross. It is a glorious cross of Christ. Well, how should we respond to this? There's a big number of people here. And it's inevitable that maybe somebody here does not know Christ. Christ. It's a very sad thing to say. It's inevitable that somebody here does not know Christ. Christ suffered for you. Christ knows you, and yet he still suffered for you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the scripture asks, how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You know, if you're not trusting in the work of Christ upon the cross... Trust today. Trust today. But the majority here are trusting in Christ, and the majority of here are praising Christ and rejoicing in the work that Christ has accomplished upon the cross, and how should we respond? And that is in the final two verses of this Psalm. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. As Christ finished, as he spoke on the cross before he died, it is finished. It is done. This psalm finishes the same way. He has done it. I treat some people... I treat many people with cancer. And there was a patient I had the good news to tell the week after six months of, actually after eight months of treatment, it's finished. The treatment's finished. There was nothing more thrilling than being able to say that. And there was nothing more pleasing for her to hear than to hear those words, it is finished. And this is great news that we have to speak to Christ. It's news on that scale. It's news far and above that scale. Christ has redeemed us. He has reconciled us to the Father. There is life everlasting. We can be brothers and sisters with Christ and call Father our Abba Father in heaven. He has done it. This is our good news. And so let us all go out and spread that news to the next generation and see his name glorified and his kingdom extended to the praise of his glorious name. Thank you.